This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my usually bi-weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jerusalem and tradition. We're back this week after our High Holy Days break. I hope everyone had a meaningful Yom Kippur and those who fasted. I hope it was an easy one. May we, our friends, family, and communities, the world, the Jewish people worldwide, and yes, even the world itself, and everyone in it, have a truly joyous, healthy, prosperous, and peaceful 5783. And that goes double for everyone who suffered because of the devastation caused by the recent natural disasters that have beset our world. We pray for the speedy recovery of all the injuries, spiritually as well as physically. We mourn for all who lost their lives and pray for those they left behind. We pray that food, clothing, and other basic necessities will reach all the survivors who need it. Post-disasters and the coming of the festival of Sukkot on Sunday night are what prompted this podcast. The two are closely related. This podcast, by the way, is an updated one from two years ago. Hurricanes aren't the only problems our world has experienced so far in 2022. We've been going through extreme weather events since the start of the year. So far through August, this year has been the sixth warmest year ever. And there's a greater than 99% chance that 2022 will end up being among the top 10 warmest years on record. There's even a slight chance that it will wind up in the top five. The period from June through August was the fifth warmest on record. In the Northern Hemisphere, this was the second hottest meteorological summer on record. 2020 summer was the hottest. Meteorological means that beginning September 1st, meteorologically, it's fall. When it's summer here, it's winter in the Southern Hemisphere, and this year it was the tenth warmest winter on record. North America and Europe both had their hottest August on record. Asia recorded its fourth hottest August. South America, Africa, and the Oceania region all had warmer than average August as well, although not as bad as the rest of the world. There were record temperatures this summer across much of the country, from the Pacific Northwest all the way into the Northeast. The July heat wave that blanketed a huge swath of the United States set more than 350 new daily high temperature records. Those excessive temperatures led to more heat-related deaths in 2022 than the average number over the last 30 years. Europe's excessive temperatures also led to many deaths. French officials, for example, say that as many as 11,000 people this year died in France because of the heat. Another consequence of this above-average global heat is the dwindling in the sea ice coverage in the Antarctic, which set another record low. The warmer the globe gets, the more dangerous are the storms that strike. There were nine named storms in August, four of which reached tropical cyclone strength, meaning winds of 74 miles per hour higher, including a Category 5 super typhoon in the Pacific. On the other hand, there were no named tropical cyclones in the Atlantic before the start of September. That's only the seventh year since 1950 in which no Atlantic hurricanes were reported through August 31st. The Atlantic hurricane season picked up pace in September, though. 
revival of four hurricanes, including the two Category 4 storms, Fiona and Ian, that hit just in the last two weeks. Ian, by the way, was just a couple of miles per hour away from being a Category 5 storm. There are at least two potential hurricanes in the making right now that scientists are keeping their eyes on. We have a long way to go before the official end of the season on November 30th. Global warming is to blame. With that as a background, the topic for this week is Sukkot. It's more relevant today than ever before. Why is Sukkot so looked down upon by so many people? Imagine, goes the reasoning, having to participate in such ludicrous rituals as waving palm branches decorated with willows and myrtle and connected no less to the world's most expensive lemon Citron, the etrog in Hebrew. Here's how the Torah describes Sukkot in Leviticus chapter 23. Quote, and on the first day of Sukkot, you are to take the fruit of the Hadar tree, in other words, a citron, an etrog. You are to take the fruit of the Hadar tree, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, as well as willows of the brook, and you shall dwell in huts for seven days unquote. To the naysayers, not only does the way this law is observed smack of some pagan tree hugging, they insist that the Torah probably never meant for its words to be taken in the way we do. As proof, they point to Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 15, in which the people are told, quote, Go out to the mountain and bring back leafy olive branches, and leafy evergreen branches, and leafy myrtle branches, and leafy palm branches, and leafy branches of thick trees to make huts, as it is written in the Torah, unquote. Obviously, the argument goes, the so-called four species, the Torah lists, the myrtle, the willow, the palm branch, and the citron, were meant as the building material for the huts. Although, what kind of moving quarters you can make out of a glorified lemon, I have no idea. The naysayers say, the whole premise of the festival is, quote, a fraud, unquote. After all, the Israelites coming out of Egypt never dwelt in huts. They dwelt in tents. That's their opinion. As I see, since the Israelites stayed in at least one place for many years during their 40 years sojourn in the wilderness, they probably did live in huts. In any case, say the naysayers, the so-called evidence is as clear as the night sky above the sukkah that this festival came very late, its origins are to be found in pagan agricultural ritual, and its connection to the exodus from Egypt was forced. Once again, the book of Nehemiah is cited. Here's more of what Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8, has to say. Quote, Since the days of Joshua, son of Nun, for that day the people of Israel had not done so. Unquote. Say the naysayers. The laws of Sukkot went unobserved since the days of Joshua, meaning for at least 600 years or more by Nehemiah's time. Then these laws probably didn't exist at all until Nehemiah and Ezra and his colleague made it so. Aside from the Torah, whose authorship is suspect as far as people making such arguments are concerned, there's almost nothing in the rest of the Tanakh, the Bible, to confirm the existence of Sukkot. So, Sukkot is easily dismissed by so many. How can we cling to such absurdities and made-up ones at that? 
and still call ourselves modern? That's the wrong question, though. The far more appropriate question is this. Precisely because we are modern, how can we not cling to Sukkot and its rituals? Let's examine what the Torah in Leviticus 23 says about Sukkot. Quote, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, shall be celebrated the festival of Sukkot. After you have harvested your land's produce, you shall celebrate the Lord's festival for seven days. And on the first day, you are to take the fruit of the Hadar tree, branches of palm tree, Ulavim or Ulavim singing, and boughs of leafy trees, known as Hanasim, as well as willows of the brook, known as Aramot, and you shall dwell in Sukkot for seven days in Sukkot. Let's unpack this mitzvah. Harvest is in. Another name for Sukkot is the festival of the ingathering. And hopefully it was a good one. Now the Israelites are to take four species of growing fruit, the etrog, a vegetable, palm, and two types of branches. And they're to dwell in temporary shelters, Sukkot, for seven days. According to the enabling legislation designed by our sages of blessed memory, Three of the four species are combined into a single package. To the love are bound three hadassim and two arabot, with slivers of palm used to create their holders and bindings. Each morning, the love is taken in the right hand and the etrog in the left. The two hands come together so all four are symbolically joined. It's all about the environment. It's all about our relationship to the land and our responsibilities to it. One fruit, one vegetable, and two different kinds of branches are combined. A blessing is made, and the palm is waved in six directions, east, west, north, south, towards the sky, towards the earth. It's all about the environment. It's all about the natural world. Taking the four species and waving them in all directions makes us pause, or should make us pause. And think about that natural world. And hopefully our responsibilities towards it. Then there's the sukkah itself. It's supposed to be made out of wood or some other naturally growing substance and have at least three sides. The boards are placed on top, and on top of the boards goes something called schach, covering that growing ground. It can be bamboo poles or pine leaves or ferns or even leaves of palm trees or the branches of other trees. Whatever is used must have grown in the ground. And must still be in its natural state. The top is not so heavily covered, though, so that the stars above are still somewhat visible. Even inside the sukkah, we need to see the world outside. We sit in the sukkah for all our meals, and we generally hang out in the sukkah as often during the day as we can. In some of the ritually rigid communities around the world, some people even sleep in the sukkah. Sukkot may be the most important observance on the Jewish calendar from an environmental standpoint, precisely because of its rituals and recent events. By insisting on us having to celebrate the natural world on the Torah is also insisting that we observe Judaism's vast body of environmental and ecological laws we have laws against air pollution, water pollution, odor pollution, and even noise pollution. We have laws designed to protect the world's flora and fauna. 
We even have laws requiring us to recycle whatever can be recycled, to not destroy anything that could be of use to anyone or anything on this planet. And there's so much more besides. We live in an age when we get emails streaming into devices nestled in our code pockets, where we can sit on a beach and still answer memos, write reports, and participate in business conferences. There's no escape from the workday world and technology rather than simplifying our lives, as so far only managed to complicate them for me. We're so far removed from the real world that it's only half in jest that someone once suggested to me changing the words of the blessing of the bread, Hamotsu. Quote, praise are you, Lord our God and universal sovereign, who brings forth the bread from the earth, unquote. The suggested change was, quote, who brings forth the bread from the oven, unquote. It's not where bread comes from. It's only how it ends up, including if it's home baked. Bread begins by someone planting seeds that are carefully cultivated until they grow into stalks of wheat. Those stalks are then winnowed to remove the score or more of grains found in each stalk. Unless whole grain flour is wanted, the grain is then milled, meaning that it's crushed, cleaned, and sieved, making it into white flour, which then may be enriched or modified in some way, red flour, self-rising flour, and so on. That flour becomes the main ingredient in a loaf of bread. To it are added such components as water, eggs, oil, salt, and sugar, and yeast, all of which required many steps of their own to get to the point that we can reduce it. Different flours produce different loaves, and the milling process also differs somewhat. There are people engaged along every step of the way, including some workers who may earn very little for very hard labor, especially across the world where each wheat stalk must be cut down by hand, probably the most labor-intensive farming test of all. Nature also has a role to play. Weather conditions, especially sun and rain, must be sufficient to allow the wheat to grow. Timing is important, too. If dry wheat is left out in the field too long, winds and storms can destroy the crop. The quality of the wheat may decrease if the wheat gets rained on and then dries again. All of this and more goes into a loaf of bread. The old sees that loaf. We don't see everything that went into creating that loaf. Now, more than at any time, when global warming threatens our planet's future, bringing with it ever more intense deadly storms and dwindling ice caps, when over 10% of the world's population is set to suffer from chronic undernourishment, we need to see the big picture. We need to be aware of the forces in nature that are needed to grow the foods we eat. And we need to be concerned about the labor involved as well. Because we need to be concerned about the welfare of all people. And especially the low-paid, so-called stupid labor. There's a world out there that goes underappreciated and undervalued. Sukkot forces us to recognize that world and how much we still need it. This festival forces us to consider all aspects of nature, the obvious ones and the not-so-obvious ones part of our very being, indeed, part of the essence of our being. Sukkot, above all else, is about the natural order of the world and the Creator whose word caused it all to come to be. There's nothing antiquated or embarrassing about Sukkot. In fact, as I see it, there's much that's quite modern and appealing about it. 
everything about Sokoto is connected to the land, is connected to the environment, is connected to nature, and it's connected as well to social justice. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org www.shammai.org and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish Standard but want to read my column, go to the columns page on the website. Shabbat Shalom, Tamar Tov, Ag Sameach, shake that lulav, stay healthy, keep taking all COVID-19 precautions, including wearing N95 masks in public, no matter who tells you otherwise. And above all, stay safe.